Let me just make some comments and give you some food for thought about reading long passages of the Bible in church. Um, the reality is God inspired long narratives. Like tonight, really to get the whole story, you've got to go back to chapter 27. 1 Samuel 27 through 30 all go together. And really to get the story right, you've got to look at all of it. And the reality is, so much of the scripture is long, lengthy narratives. This is just the way God has given us the Bible. And if we're going to rightly understand them, we've got to understand them in context, which sometimes, like tonight, means reading more than one chapter. Particularly in the Old Testament, you know, most of the Old Testament contains these long narratives. God inspired a lot of history. And this history teaches us about God and his dealings with his followers. But but the reality is, too, for the church, if we follow the New Testament, one of our goals is maturity. One of our goals is, is, is growing in maturity to understand the Word of God, to learn the Word of God. And like I said before, it, I, I believe the Bible is incredibly gripping. I think the story tonight is just, it's just awesome. It's just awesome. Uh, one of the things about reading long narratives of Scripture is we, we need to remember the power of God's Word. Psalm 19.7, the, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It is the word of God that rejoices the heart. Again, that's where my prayer is, through the reading of the word of God and the preaching of the word of God, us, his people, our hearts would be revived. And, and our hearts would rejoice. Uh, that the word of God's a joy to hear. In Nehemiah's day, the, the people had gone a long time without hearing the word of God. And essentially, apparently, Ezra gets up and probably reads the first five books of the Bible, but it takes like half a day. And along with that is, is explanation on the part of the priest. And if you read in Nehemiah 8, when they read this extended, lengthy portion of Scripture, probably five whole books, they certainly were not bored. They were not bored. And incidentally this, in the, the tradition of the church is these letters you have in your New Testament, the letters to the New Testament churches. Those letters were circulated among the churches, and those letters would have been read publicly in the church, and very likely the entire letter would have been read. So this is, this is part of the history of God's people, or the, 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 the reading of lengthy narratives of Scripture. And of course, God's people historically have prized the reading of his, of his Word. So for us in here, us adults, we need to learn to pay attention. We need to learn to focus, and I think all of us can do that, like eliminating distractions. I think this is one of the possible, um, one of the possible points of distraction would be if you're reading the, the Word of God on your phone or if you're following along on your phone, if you get a text message, it's hard to not be distracted by that. But we just need to try to eliminate all the distractions we can, like, for instance, when we have children in the service. Uh, I'm not going to go into to why I think that's a good idea, but the reality is children can be distracting. But here's the, here's the deal as adults. Now, and I'm not talking about our kids. I'm talking about other ki kids. We can learn to focus and pay attention when there is a toddler acting like a toddler. We can learn that. One of the ways we can also pay attention is to, to listen with a pen in your hand. For most of us, our minds wander. But if, you have, if you're taking notes, it'll help you follow along. So those are just some thoughts for you because... Part of studying the Bible is going to be listening or reading long narratives of Scripture. And I'm going to actually pick it up in, in 1 Samuel 27 and verse 1 to give you the context of where we're at. 1 Samuel 27 and verse 1. You know, Saul, Saul the king, had been chasing David 
Over and over again, David had escaped. And look what happens in 1 Samuel 27.1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. This is so odd. To turn to the Philistines for safety? This is, this is the enemy of Israel that David has been fighting. In fact, David has become famous as an adversary of the Philistines. And, and David here is so afraid of Saul, who incidentally God has delivered him from over and over again, that now David is going to turn to the Philistines for security. One person titled their sermon from chapter 27, Trusting the Philistines as Your Personal Savior. Obviously, David has a failure of faith here. That's what these chapters are recounting, how David's faith is inconsistent. And what we're going to look at tonight is how it costs him and then what David learns from it. Because it's going to be this inconsistency of faith that is going to lead to consequences in David's life, but then it's going to lead to David trusting in the Lord more and actually being strengthened in the Lord. There's a lot of drama going on here. This, uh, essentially, at this time period when David goes to, to Philistia, He's there for approximately a year, and then guess what the Philistines do? Well, they do what they've been doing for years. They rally their forces for battle to go against Israel. And and, and so this becomes a dilemma for David. David has already proven that he's going to spare Saul's life. David David recognizes it as a matter of conviction for him not to kill Saul. He's not going to do that. And now the Philistines are rallying for battle, and guess where David is? He's among them. And essentially, you have this cliffhanger at the beginning of chapter 28 about the Philistines calling David out to war. And David's like, you're going to see what I can do. But no doubt, this was a a trial and a time of stress for him. Back to 29. 29, we see the Philistines reject David. Look Look at it in chapter 29 and verse 1. Now, the Philistines had gathered their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. You see here, the Philistines reject David. David is with Achish, that's the Philistine king that David's defected to, apparently. And the Philistines recognize there's Hebrews here with us. We're about to go and slaughter the Hebrews. What is this group doing? And not only Hebrews, but David? David is a famous killer of the the Philistines. I mean, you, you have to be pretty famous in battle to get a song written about you. 
And not only do the Israelites know the song, but the Philistines know the song. So the point being here, the Philistines, rec- the Philistines reject David as part of their army. Duh! Obviously. And, and one of the, the ironies here, and there's a lot of irony in these passages tonight, is that it's uncircumcised Philistines clearly recognize how bizarre this is. This is bizarre. What's David doing among them? They even recognize it. Philistines don't want him there. And then what we see in the rest of chapter 29, uh, the bizarre just continues to get even more strange as Achish, the Philistine king, encourages David. Because what you've got among the Philistines is, I believe it's five cities and five kings. And uh, apparently it's four kings that say we don't want David and then one of the kings, Achish, who again, incidentally, is the king of Gath where Goliath was from. They don't want David there. Now look at what Achish does as he essentially comforts David. Verse 6. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines and the Philistines went up to Jezreel. And this is just very strange. Notice first in verse 6 what Achish says. Achish calls David to him and said, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. This is strange on two accounts. First of all, you have Achish invoking the name of the Lord. Now, if you would go back and you read chapter 27, and then the beginning of 28, and now 29, in this whole time where David is in Philistia, this is the first mention of the Lord. And it comes from Achish the Philistine. This, again, is a a period apparently in David's life where you don't see him referring to the Lord at all. Not until Achish invokes the name of the Lord. And then Achish says, you've been honest. Which, if you go back to chapter 27, you'll find the opposite is true. David has been a dishonest hypocrite with Achish. David has been doing one thing, namely attacking the Amalekites and others and killing every one of them so there wouldn't be any witnesses and then essentially telling Achish and reporting back to him, you know, where are you raiding? I'm raiding the, the, the Negeb of Judah. I'm ra- raiding the area of Judah. So David's not been honest. He's been lying. And just, again, with thick and heavy irony, Achish says, you have been honest, which the reader knows, no, that's not the case. That's not the case. And essentially, what's going to happen with David? It's going to be out of the frying pan and into the fire. Because he's in in the frying pan here. He's 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 seemingly about to go to battle. He's got this Achish snowed, totally, totally fooled. And he's about to go from the, the, the frying pan into the fire. Now he thinks he's kind of escaped because now he doesn't have to go and fight 
Israelites. But now he's going to go back to the place where he was stationed in Philistia. And look what happens in chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahunim of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Essentially what we learn from this is you reap what you sow. We learn this consistent biblical principle in that what we sow is what we will reap and that we will reap more than we sow and we reap after we sow. If you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. David has been lying. He's been killing. He's been dishonest. And he's not been turning to the Lord. And look what happens. He's gone to the Philistines to save him. He's looked to them for security and for hope and for safety. And he's been given Ziklag, which, you know, you, you read back in chapter 27, from a worldly perspective, things have been very profitable for David. I mean, David's profiting from all this murdering and this killing and this raiding, which was the common practice in that day and time. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a survival of the fittest culture in much of the world. And David was profiting from it. He was gaining much from it. And then he returns back to Ziklag, no, no doubt, excited, whoa, you know, I don't have to go to war now against my people, I'm on my way back. And what does he find? He finds a smoldering ruin where he once found the now home of his family and the family of all his men. And then what happens? His men, his own soldiers, speak of stoning him. They speak of stoning him. How quickly the tide has turned. How quickly the, the apparent blessings turn into devastation. He's reaping what he sows. But look at the end of verse 6. But David strengthened himself and the Lord is God. So you reap what you sow. It's an eternal principle. But friends, what we need to do is we need to strengthen ourselves in the Lord, especially in distress. Strengthen yourself in the Lord, especially in distress. Look at verse 6, understandably. David was greatly distressed. His family's been captured. His family's been captured. You know what they do with captives? We won't go into all the details, but one of the things they do is they sell them as slaves. Now, first of all, I want you to see the contrast with Saul in chapter 28. And this is why there's an, there's an interruption between 27 and, and chapter 30 with chapter 28. And there you see Saul, and Saul is distressed. In fact, go back and look at 1 Samuel 28, and verse 15, then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am in great distress. Saul is facing distress in chapter 28, and what does he do? He turns to a medium. He turns to a, a person to speak with the dead for him, 
uh, a practice forbidden by God and a practice that even Saul had forbidden in his kingdom. But he turns out he is so desperate for guidance in his distress, he would go to, to essentially the very means of the devil, which the scripture says divination is as the sin of witchcraft in 1 Samuel earlier. But look at how different David responds to this distress. At the end of verse 6, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So there is a very clear contrast here. By the way, the word distress is the same word in both places. And David strengthens himself in the Lord. What, what a great lesson for us as we go through a life that will be full of distress from one degree to another. And essentially what you've got here in chapters 27 to 30, you have the turning point in David's faith. You, you essentially see the David of old. The faithful David that you've been used to, to, to seeing the Lord with him. He strengthens himself in the Lord. What an, what, a, what an encouragement here. And notice it's the turmoil that incites this. It's the, it's the distress that, that, that pushes David to depend on the Lord. Now David believed in God. David had had periods of faithfulness previously in his life. But he is in a period of inconsistency, which all of us are subject to. And it is this time of distress that causes David to depend on the Lord. Friends, we need to seek the Lord in our distress. We should seek him at all times and not wait for distress to push us to God, but particularly when we face distress, we need to make it our reflex to strengthen ourselves in God. Well, what are some of the ways that we can do that? Just very simply, what we see in, in all through Scripture, we pray. Prayer is a means of receiving divine strength. I mean, our Lord Jesus Christ received divine strength and confirmation in the garden before he's betrayed and before he goes to the cross. Again, look at how Jesus, who is distressed in the garden, even unto death, and then he prays three times, confirming the will of God for his life. And then look at how different Jesus is when he's betrayed, when he's arrested, when he's on trial, when he's on the cross. Faithful. Faithful. Friends, prayer gives us divine strength. It's a means of divine strength. We should pray to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Secondly, we should read the Word of God and meditate on it. The world and our flesh is in constant conflict with what God says. And we need regular. Friends, I would say we all need daily reorientation of our mind and our heart to what God says. This is why you read the Word of God. Read it slowly and carefully and think about it because we need to reorient our minds and our hearts to what God says. We have it before us what God says. Give it, give it your life to the regular, consistent reading, reading, study, and meditation of the Word of God, even if it's just a couple verses a day. You know, that, that might be a good, more than what you're doing now, which would be a huge improvement. But getting the Word of God, getting what God says before you every day, you'll be reminded of God's power. This is a book about God. You'll be reminded by examples like this where David is in, he's in such distress, his, his family's gone, captive. His men want to stone him. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine a circumstance like this. And he strengthens himself in the Lord. If you read the Word of God, you will be reminded of the promises of God. The Word of God will set your perspective and it will inform your decision-making. It will inform your decision-making. Friends, just as a reminder here, it is the Lord who can and will deliver you out of any distress. He can do it. That's why we need to turn to Him. One of my favorite 
cross-references here is Psalm 50, verse 15. Robinson Crusoe's text. Psalm 50 and verse 15. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. God, isn't it amazing? In a life full of trouble, God calls us to call upon him and says that he'll deliver us. And then the result is we glorify him. We need to seek to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Now look what happens in verse 7. David said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. The ephod apparently is, is, is something the priest has or maybe wears that would authorize him to have access to God, something like that. It's, it's, a, it's a bit shady. Shady meaning uncertain. So Abathar brought the ephod to, to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David sent out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed, but David pursued, and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. So, so there you see David seeking God. He's praying to God. Now, verses 11 to 25, we're going to see God's providence. We're going to see God's amazing providence. What I mean by providence is uh, this, this reality that God is ruling over all and directing all events to fulfill his purpose. That things don't happen by chance or consequence, but God has purposes in what takes place in our life, even though we oftentimes don't know what the purposes are. This is one of those accounts where you can see what the purposes of God are, beginning in verse 11. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me here because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against the... And against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. So, so keep in mind what David and his men are doing here. They're pursuing, but they, where, where are they going? There's no evidence in the text that they know where the Amalekites went. And, and in fact, they're pursuing at such a rate that a, a, a number of his soldiers get so tired they're unable to continue. They stay back. And then they found an Egyptian in the open country. Wow, that was lucky. No, that was providential. They found the right guy at the right time. And I'll show you why in just a minute. Verse 16. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing. Whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, David 
brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Uh, so a few interesting things here. He comes there and they're eating, drinking, and dancing. Uh, if you want an advantage uh, in combat, you want your enemies to be drunk um, or to be drinking. One of the things Sun Tzu says is one of the ideal times to attack a foe is after a victory. And that's what you have here. They're victorious. They're not expecting to be attacked. So they're living it up. This is a good reason, though it may offend some of our uh, soldiers who like to enjoy libations. You've got to be careful. You've got to beware out there on the battlefield. And also, verse 17, David struck them from twilight. That's the evening until the evening of the next day. In the ancient world, they didn't fight at night because you couldn't see. Apparently, there are so many people here in this band of the Amalekites. I mean, just a, a small group of them escaped, the 400 young men on camels, that essentially it is just a killing spree all night for David and his men when he finds them in this kind of a vulnerable, pathetic position. Verse 21, Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Now, now what you must not miss here, and this is where the point comes, is the midpoint of verse 23. You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. And this is where we need to depend on the Lord's provision. We depend on the Lord's provision. You notice how David, how David understands the events that have transpired before him. He understands it as the provision of the Lord. Pursuing, yes. Using military tactics, yes. Fighting against the foe, yes. But at the end, after the battle's done, David recognizes this is the Lord's doing. The Lord gave us this stuff. And we're not going to deny these others who were too tired to go on because that's just the way we operate. And then David, who will later become king and who is here a leader, makes it a statute. That's just the way we roll. Now, David in chapter 27 got himself into a pickle, a bad one. And God gets him out of it. God gets him out of it. Not apart from David seeking the Lord. And David strengthening himself in the Lord and pursuing the Lord. David brought this, own, this distress upon himself, and that's the case sometimes for us. Now, oftentimes there's lots of things that happen in life that are totally beyond our control. And it's just the reality of sadly living in a sinful world. But there's also other times in life where we've committed sin and clearly we reap what we sow. That's, that's, the, that's the case of these chapters here, but still yet, the Lord gets him out of it. The Lord acts in such a way to deliver David and his 
Man, isn't it amazing? Though we've sinned, the Lord still carries us through, and he does. He does. I mean, how much, I mean, all of us, our lives are just littered with stupid mistakes and sins, aren't they? I mean, they're just, they're just everywhere in our history. But the Lord's brought us to the, the moment we see before us now, where we're blessed by God in so many ways. And the Lord's brought us through. A couple other things that you learn from David. David's success in battle is not based on his own savviness. This is where we have to be wise and careful. It's based on the sovereignty of God. And this is one of the great lessons David will teach us. He is dependent on God. Does that mean he doesn't act? Absolutely not. He does act. Depending on God and believing that God rules over all doesn't lead us to think, well, it doesn't matter what I do. Absolutely not. It's just a recognition like when David stood before Goliath, the battle is the Lord's. David was not standing before Goliath filled with just self-confidence in himself and his training, though he had that. And God used it. He recognized the reason why this dude is going to go down and his head is going to come off is because of the Lord. You're going to see how the Lord saves. And he doesn't save by human means. Right? I mean, the death of a man on a cross is not human means. I mean, that appears to be a defeat. But that's the way the Lord saves. Look at Psalm 18, 29. Psalm 18, essentially Psalm 18 is a, is a copy of uh, 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22 is such a great chapter, it's got to appear twice in the Bible. Psalm 18, it's a victory psalm after essentially David's been delivered from all of his enemies. David doesn't look to himself and his abilities. Look at what he says. Here's just a sampling. Psalm 18, 29. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God. I can leap over a wall. How does David get across those battlements and how does David defeat those fortified cities? It's by God. It's the, it's the same way Jericho fell. By faith, the walls of Jericho came down. This is God's doing. Now, did Joshua and the people have to obey God? Absolutely. And did it happen according to those means? Yes, but it was God who did it. And this is, again, one of the great lessons you learn from David. Look at Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. David's a military man, a man of great training, and a man of incredible ability. But at the end of the day, he knows he's got to trust in the Lord. And that it's not chariots that win the day of battle. It's not horses that carry the day, it's the Lord. And this is what makes him great. His dependence is on God. Now, you think of a man like David. Who, had, who demonstrates such incredible faith over and over again and writes about it over and over again. By the way, David is the most famous person in the Old Testament other than the coming Christ. There is way more about David in the Old Testament than about Moses or Abraham. David gets way more print in the Old Testament than anybody else. He is the biggest human hero of the Old Testament, by far and away. And then you've got chapters like this that we looked at tonight. This man of incredible faith also succumbed to incredible, bizarre inconsistencies. Much like Abraham. I mean, what's Abraham doing going down to Egypt? And I I mean, my goodness, Abraham marries Hagar? What? God's already told him what he would do, and well, let's just try to fix these promises and get this done ourselves. And it brings consequences. Friends, David would learn that the only place of real security is the Lord. And I think that's why you have this, because he becomes 
so well known in the Psalms for trusting in God to deliver him. How did he learn that? He learned it the hard way right here in these chapters. Isn't that the way most of us have to learn? Maybe it's part of God's design. It's part of being a sinner. We learn the hard way, especially if you're a hard-headed person like some of us are. That's how David learned it. Many of those Psalms, like Psalm 18, are written after this. But isn't the Bible so good and so honest to show us an account like this where this great man of God, where the Bible exposes his inconsistency? Every one of the great men of God of the Old Testament are sinners and inconsistent. One more point before we close. Beginning in verse 26. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It is for those in Bethel, in Ramoth, of the Negeb, in Jatir, in Areor, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremalites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horma, in Borashan, in Athach, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. So, uh, some of these places are the places that the Amalekites had raided, but these primarily are places that had taken care of David in his sojourning. And what does he do? He sends them money. He sends the elders of Judah money. Essentially, elders, now these are like tribal leaders. These are the people with like political clout. Now, doesn't that make sense? For a refugee like David to, to send People in his own family and his tribe who have political clout, what does he do? He sends them gifts. So what does that teach you? What well, teaches you to use practical wisdom? Not only does David have this hearty trust in the providence of God, but that does not keep him from using practical wisdom, which you see here. Incidentally, when David eventually is going to come to become king, how does that happen? He's going to need political backers for that to take place. Obviously, he's got the Lord. But you, you see... A hearty trust in the providence of God doesn't preclude the use of practical wisdom. That's what you see here at the end. This is just a smart thing to do, especially if one day you're going to become king. You might want to, you might want to be in the, the good graces of these elders. And that's what you see here. This is, again, just another example of this great balance you see in the Bible, the providence of God and the view of the Bible, that God is in control of everything that happens, but that doesn't... In preclude us from being wise and taking action. Now here's what we learn. In our practical use of wisdom, we need to operate within the boundaries that God has set, and that's where David went afoul, with his sin, with his lack of faith. That yes, we should use practical wisdom, but friends, God has set down boundaries for us that are very clear. And that's where we study the Bible and learn the Bible, and hopefully have people in our life that teach the Bible and hold us accountable to the Bible. And we recognize, no, God has said no to that. Therefore, my practical wisdom can't allow me to go there. It is not practically wise to go to Philistia, David. Why? Well, for a variety of reasons. So that's, there's the limit of practical wisdom. It has a place and it is necessary and it's important. But its limits are where God sets the limits, where God puts the boundaries. Again, like with Abraham. You know, I, I want to have this kid. God said I would have this baby. Um, and then Sarah tries to expedite the process. And that brings about serious consequences. 
rather than just being patient and trusting God. Well, one of the other things that we see here in closing is this other theme you find all through the scripture and how God is working. What, what God loves to do, apparently because he does it so often, recognizing that we live in a sinful world and you know, God uses sinners, that's all he's got to work with other than obviously his perfect son and the angels that haven't fallen. God turns tragedies into triumphs. Don't you see that here? David is in a tragic and terrible place in chapter 27. I mean, he is following seemingly in the course of Saul. But God turns this tragedy of chapter 27 into unbelievable triumph. And it goes through a hard path where David will be strengthening himself in the Lord. And you find it all through the scripture. Jacob. Okay, so Jacob deceives his dad, Isaac, and essentially cheats his brother out of his brother's birthright and then flees to his relative Laban. And it does not really go well for Jacob while he's with Laban from one perspective. Well, what happens? What does God do to, for Jacob while he's there? Just blesses him unbelievably. And then when he comes out, I mean, he goes in with nothing but his staff and, is, and, and on the run for his life. And then he comes out with a huge family and incredible goods. God turns tragedy into triumph. I mean, just think of that tragedy Jacob was in. Cheating his brother, lying to his dad. This is, this is the last, then he leaves, goes into exile. There's so many. Naomi and Ruth is a great example, especially in light of David, because it's, it's Ruth that is going to lead to the coming of David. And, and it's through tragic circumstances. Where Naomi goes to, to Moab and, and, and loses her husband and, and children. And then, I mean, just, she just understandably wants to change her life to, to Mara. Just call me bitter. But God, in just the course of a few chapters, works in such a way, not only to assuage her bitterness, but to turn it into joy years later. And, 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 and to bring about a child that would ultimately lead to David and then to the Christ. God, this is just one of the ways God works. In the lives of his people, he turns tragedies into triumphs. And of course, Jesus is the greatest example, isn't he? It is the worst night of history when Jesus is arrested and betrayed. Well, look what God does with that. He fulfills his word. I mean, again, you would look at Jesus on the cross and think, it's over. I mean, that's what those disciples on the road to Emmaus thought. I mean, we thought he'd be the one to redeem Israel, but we were wrong. He's been crucified. He's put to death like the Romans like to kill people. He's just another victim. Wrong. God turned tragedy into triumph. It's the greatest triumph of all, that he died for sins and was raised from the dead. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the, the wisdom revealed in your word. God, I pray we'd learn that we reap what we sow. Uh, that we'd learn it from the hard example of David and that we wouldn't go down those paths. God, that we'd learn to strengthen ourselves in you, to consult you, to seek you, to look to you, to put all of our reliance in you, to pursue your will, Lord, to know your will and to do it, even though it's hard. God, give us strength to do that. Help us to be, God, by, by nature, Lord, I just pray that it would be our reflex to strengthen ourselves in you rather than to look to our own 
hand to save ourselves or to get ourselves out of difficult circumstances, that we'd cry out to you and look to you for help. And God, I just pray you'd rescue us from the day of trouble. That you're a very present help in time of need. Thank you, Lord, that you're very present in a time of need. Help us to remember that, that you're our refuge, that we wouldn't look to worldly sources or fleshly sources for refuge, but God, we'd look to you who are the king of kings. And God, I just pray we'd rejoice in the fact that you turn the tragic story of our sins and our lives into triumph through Christ. That God, you demonstrate your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that you who did not spare your own son but gave him up for us all, how will you not also with him graciously give us all things? Lord, we recognize that our future is to be glorified and that that future for believers in Christ is certain. God, we'd rejoice in that tonight. And we'd see, and, and God, it would cause us to love to tell the story, knowing that through that story of Jesus and what he did, the good news of the gospel, other people can be adopted into your eternal family and be translated into your kingdom. So God, help us to share that good news, and I pray many would believe it. I pray you'd give us strength to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.